Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Suburbs are the invention of another era, far flung from the city centre and removed from places of work and largely made of standalone houses. Our suburbs could only have happened thanks to the motor car. But with Transport, our second largest greenhouse gas emitter, it's time to rethink the way we move, and it all starts with where we live. A clutch of new approaches are emerging from intensification to carless neighbourhoods and placing housing around transport nodes, but not everyone likes the new approach. To discuss how suburbs are changing, I'm joined by Eloise Gibson, the climate change editor at Stuff. Eloise, thank you for joining me once again. Kia ora, Vincent. Nice to be back. Well, you've been busy. I know you're always busy, but you uh, have published your, I think it's a quarterly magazine, is it? The Forever Project. Tell us about that. So this is a quarterly magazine, as you say. It comes out in all of Stuff's daily newspapers and in the Sunday Star Times. And each edition focuses on a different aspect of climate change. So um, we've done kind of traffic, we've done the green rebuild, uh, we've done Christmas shopping, and this particular edition focuses on housing. So we've called it When the Housing Crisis Met the Climate Crisis, uh, which <laughs> we can probably agree, two of the biggest crises facing New Zealand at the moment. If you could just throw biodiversity into there, you've got the trifecta of crises. Indeed. We didn't manage to, to squish that in, but um, but we do plan to in future editions. Great. I look forward to more crises. Thank you very much. Uh, well, let's talk about suburbs. I think there's a terrific piece by um, Olivia Wannan, uh, who probably should be on the show, but I, we didn't get around to inviting her. Um, but uh, she has got this amazing statistic. 73% of Kiwis still commute in their cars to work. That's a huge number. Isn't it? And it is a, it's a fantastic feature about the role of urban planning in kind of forcing us into this situation where we all sit in our cars on the way to work every day. Um, the vast majority of us simply don't have fast or efficient public transport options or accessible walking or cycling to get us where we are because we're kind of trapped in the burbs, right? A lot of us aren't in the beautiful um Victorian homes that are that are near shops, near train stations, um, or in apartments, because New Zealand hasn't got a well-established culture of apartment and terraced house living yet. So she looked at kind of how did we get here? What were the principles of, of suburban planning and urban design that brought us to this place? And mm. what does it mean for people who you know, are being driven for price or other reasons far from the places where they work or go to school or recreate. I mean, it's very easy to look back and judge, uh, you know, the development of the 50s and 60s, which is largely the kind of city we've inherited. And uh, But, you know, there were good reasons. There was a quote in the story by uh, Waikato University professor Ian White, a, a, a thought that hadn't occurred to me before, that commuting made sense when many workers headed to smoky, noisy factories, the historical rise of the suburbs 
was rich people insulating themselves from pollution. That's such an interesting take and makes so much sense when you think about just how predominant manufacturing and factories were in the life of ordinary people. That hadn't occurred to me until I read the feature either. Um, And yet I have seen similar situations, you know, Detroit in the United States being one of the most obvious uh, kind of examples, just a huge car manufacturing industry that fuels its economy and had really pushed the white, wealthy American residents of that city further and further out into these car-dependent suburbs. And, you know, I don't think Auckland's situation, for example, is quite so extreme, but you do see this similar kind of patterns. Um, And, of course, the perverse outcome of that is that we've now ended up creating a whole lot of pollution, which we're now having to breathe no matter where we live in the city, because of cars and a rising population with rising per capita car ownership. Um, which was not the intended outcome. But of course, knowing what we know now, we probably wouldn't do it the same way twice. What were the other drivers for suburbia? You know, what has been the rationale for pushing people away from city centres and places of work? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Olivia's feature talks about uh, this idea that urban planning was done in silos. So you lived here, you work over here, you party over here and you go to school over here and all of those places can really only be reached by car because of the, you know, the distance between. So neighbourhoods are just house farms. I think that is part of it. But I also think just a lack of planning, frankly, is behind this. You know, the far smarter journalists than I have written long features about how the financial incentives for housing developers pushed them to build and sell increasingly larger homes. So these are kind of derogatorily called McMansions sometimes. Bigger and bigger and more carbon intensive and more space hungry homes further and further from the city centre because that was how they could make the most money from selling these things off um, because of the cost of building. Uh, and various other factors. So I think a lot of it is, is actually not down to planning, but just um, failures in, in the housing system that have allowed it to happen without anyone really necessarily wanting it to. Um, but, you know, culture is probably part of it too, right? I do think that the quarter acre dream is a real cultural phenomenon in New Zealand. And I think that, um, you know, in lockdown at the moment, I'm sure many of us are grateful for our backyards and, and grateful for the fact that we do live surrounded by trees, in my case, um, and not in an apartment. But I think that is partly due to the fact that, you know, we perhaps haven't yet established a situation where apartment and terraced house, that kind of dense living, is really attractive. You know, surrounded by green space, surrounded by a fantastic outdoor recreation and um, quick ability to get wherever you need to go because I think those are the things that tip that type of living over to being in in many cases more attractive than the the spread out alternative. Um, You know I would also say that just affordability has been a massive a massive factor. I know that when my husband and I were looking to buy a home we would have stayed in the central ring of suburbs in Auckland where we'd flattered our whole youths if you like and we just Mm. couldn't afford it we had to move a 30 minute drive from where we had always lived because 
um, all of those central ring suburbs with the beautiful villas were far out of our reach. So cost has got to be part of it, right? We know that the the ring around Auckland has been uh, effectively uh, one of the strongest drivers of the cost of housing and the uh, limits on Greenfield's development for all the good reasons that we know about reducing commute times and and cost of um, uh, new infrastructure. Um, But that has driven uh, a really big rise in prices. And so the suburbs, the suburbs have made kind of an economic rationale, haven't they? New fields, new places for people to live where the land is cheaper. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I mean, I would add that from a climate change perspective, the ring is absolutely the right thing to do and makes sense. I think what has failed is the lack of alternative building. I mean, in order to make that work without pushing up house prices, you need to have a whole lot of densification and building inside the ring, and that didn't happen. So, you know, I'm always a bit wary of blaming the ring in isolation because I think probably that is what we need to move back towards. Um, That decision was made for good reasons, in my view. But, yeah, as you say, without without the building somewhere else to take the pressure off that, um, it, it hasn't had a good impact on housing and we've got people sleeping in cars. And I think that is what has really pressured local and central government to allow a whole lot of greenfield developments that, from a climate perspective, probably weren't the right thing to do. Um, but faced with this intense housing crisis and the you know, humanitarian impacts of that, it's been really hard for them to hold the line <laughs> uh, on the emissions side of well, things, well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about that in a moment. But let's focus on what alternatives are emerging in this, uh, I suppose, within the ring. Um, the changes that are being done to planning and development and new housing uh, kind of designs, I suppose, the way the way developers are redesigning suburbs. What are you seeing? What have you reported on? That's always interesting, isn't it? Because um, you would think just driving around, you know, West Auckland, where I live, for example, that the housing crisis would be solved. There is so much construction going on. Um, and a lot of it is now these really lovely apartment developments that, you know, someone like me who lives in a standalone one-level house in a big section can actually look at pretty enviously and think, wow, that was awesome. (laughs) I would actually give up my car to live in one of those, Um, you know, as long as it was one of the ones with a swimming pool and a shared EV. um, Sign me up. But that seems to be um, quite new, and I think we're seeing that take off more and more. So we're seeing carless developments, we're seeing um, shared vehicles, we're seeing perhaps a higher quality for those who can afford it of these dense developments Um, and uh, interesting new things like the co-housing model where rather than a developer doing something for profit, the people who want to live there are involved right from the start. and kind of keeping the cost down and building and running it the way that they want to live, which I think is a really cool, cool initiative. And of course, you know, what the Climate Change Commission and others are saying is that we need a lot 
more of that. We need um, more dense, more concentrated development around these transport hubs, and we need more of the transport hubs. So we need faster electric trains going more places, zippier walking and cycling routes going more places, so that in these quite concentrated areas, you don't have to have cars, because even an EV takes up a heck of a lot of space when space is at a premium. Uh, and of course, you also need to leave space for green areas. You need playgrounds, big wide open parks, um, space for nature, because people aren't able to have that in their backyard and they still need it for, for sanity, for health, um, for you know decompression at the end of the day. You don't want to be in a situation where you're cramming people into shoeboxes and not giving them that um, that kind of enjoyment that you can get from living further out. So that's what is needed and is increasingly happening. But I would say the pace of change is, is probably still far too slow um, when you look at what a city like Auckland needs to do for its emissions, which are largely transport. You know, it's the, the lion's mm. share of emissions in a city like Auckland are people driving their cars. 67%, I seem to remember. Uh, there's a suburb, uh, there's a development in, near Papakura called Sunfield, which is uh, probably going to become quite iconic, I think, in the way it's designed. They have uh, reduced the number of roads inside the suburb and also reduced the, the number of parking areas. Uh, so not each house doesn't necessarily get its own park, car park. Mm. Um, and the cost saving is quite profound. Each, uh, according to the CEO, whose uh, name is Chris Winton, uh, sorry, uh, Chris Meehan, um, the developer is called Winton, he's saying that each, each house will cost easily $100,000 less than your standard Auckland housing. Does that reflect actually the true cost of what a car park costs? Is a, is a car park $100,000? I don't know. I mean, that seems insanely high. Certainly we know in central city developments that, you know, for example, an office tower going up, if it can take away the need to have a massive amount of that development for its staff to park every day, that's a big cost saving. Uh, and we are seeing companies reporting on that um, and kind of being seen to do the right thing for the climate, but also saving heaps of money. I have no idea if that hundred thousand dollar figure for a car park is right. Um, well, it's, it stacks up with what I've uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It does stick up with. Um, well, I spoke to an architect not so long ago about uh, carless apartments, and the number also was around about a hundred thousand that they were charging for yeah. the car park. So you could buy an apartment with a car park, but there was an, an extra cost of a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. And what was interesting was the change in behaviour. Right, that once you actually quantified the amount of money you need to spend to, on a car park, suddenly uh, people were not interested in a it car park. Cheap, doesn't it? If you really think about it, um, you know, or renting a car to go on holiday, suddenly, if you're not stumping up a hundred thousand dollars and all of your insurance and registration and other costs, um, begins to make the alternative seem quite reasonable, doesn't it? And well, I, think I think it does. It's interesting yeah, too that um, you know this is now being seen as viable because I think people would have just 
laughed at the idea of buying a house without a car park. Um, you know, you do still see in real estate listings the little icon that tells you how much off-street parking you've got. So it's not entirely out of our psyches yet, but the fact that it is now seen as feasible, even for families with children, to survive without owning their own car is an interesting sign of the times. Um, and I think that probably one of the, the shifts that's happening and that needs to happen faster is making these developments, you know, family-friendly, elderly person-friendly, so that they're not just for people at a particular stage of life. Because I think a lot of people can probably imagine you know, their first home perhaps with a with a partner or, or a friend or on their own being an apartment or a, a terraced house, but assume that they will move to a big two-storey home in Henderson when they have kids. Um, but, of course, in, you know, in cities like Hong Kong and New York, that's not what you do. You have your Great Dane and your three children in an apartment, and it works fine because those cities are set up to give people what they need to be able to live in those environments. And so we are seeing a move by the, you know, the urban planners and the developers now to make dense, you know, dense kind of housing that is suitable for a wider range of people in different living circumstances. You, you make the point, it was quite interesting, that we are almost returning to a Victorian era and you point to a suburb like uh, Remuera where shops, cafes, transport is all within a 15-minute walk. And there's even this sort of language around the 15-minute city. Yeah, and the idea behind that is that you should be able to get to work, school, um, a restaurant, wherever you need to go within a 15-minute walk or cycle, so not sitting in your car for 15 minutes, but to physically get yourself there. Uh, within that amount of time uh, and we did have the lead feature in the latest magazine was Ethan Teora interviewing a whole bunch of 20 and 13 year olds who were living in what you would call 15 minute neighbourhoods so they were in apartments and were able to walk and cycle anywhere that they needed to go and they were waxing lyrical about the lifestyle benefits of being able to do that and how much money it saved them how um, enriching it was for their social lives and their sense of communities, uh, and, of course, just being able to knit back and forth from work or wherever they needed to go. And I think they maybe represent the future in some ways, those um, those young people, because I think when they come to have families or, or buy a second house, they may think differently about it uh, than what people of my age did when we were going through that decision-making process. So I think the 15-minute neighbourhood is pretty cool. Um, and, it, and, you know, it can be achieved out in the burbs as well. I mean, not to forget, yes, we're building, but we're also, let's be honest, we're stuck with the Hendersons and the Tisarangis and the Albanies. Uh, you know, those are there. Those houses are not going anywhere. And so with a, a whole bunch of us working from home at the moment, it's an opportunity to think about, do I have a cafe I can walk to? How long would it take my kids to bike to school now that there's not so many cars on the road? Um, and actually, you know, a lot of us can have that where we are, particularly if we don't need to drive into Auckland CBD or Wellington CBD to work every day. I think the 15-minute neighbourhoods can spring up around cities and not just in these kind of new, newfangled developments. 
Hmm. You make the point that in contrast to um, the 1950s and 60s, where the majority of us worked in factories or manufacturing, now it's it's a small minority, only 235,000 people in New Zealand work in factories, uh, whereas 1.5 million jobs are in offices and facilities. And your, your point is well made that a lot of that work can be done from home or at least uh, in a cafe or a library or a facility that actually, so long as there's a good internet and a decent coffee machine, why would you need to commute? COVID has shown us that we can survive pretty well um, without travelling in, right? <laughs> I mean, probably few of us are missing our workmates at the moment and we'd like to be able to go in occasionally, but it doesn't need to be every day. Um, and actually on that point about service industries and the, the rise of versus manufacturing, we really saw that last year in our emissions tally because everything shut down, yet our primary industries of manufacturing and agriculture kept going. And we saw that in the fact that our emissions as a country actually barely fell. Transport emissions dropped, but from our kind of employment industries, they really just stayed flat, even throughout level four. And that was because those service industries that were most affected by level four lockdown actually produced bugger all emissions anyway. <laughs> so um, it was really interesting to see, you know, the the difference between the GDP impact of those service industries being out of business and the emissions, which actually they weren't producing much anyway. So hmm. you know, there's a lot to be said for, for the humble office worker <laughs> when you're looking at climate change. Meanwhile, out in Drury, there is a 1960-style development, perhaps I'm being cruel, but that's a huge development that in some ways defies all the descriptions that you've just uh, outlined about what an ideal suburb, new suburb, could look like. What's happening in Drury and how has that been allowed to happen? So one of the fascinating uh, statistics in Olivia's story was that I think it's it's predicted to have as many people as New Plymouth, that, that area, the wider area of new development that's happening there. So essentially we are building another city on the doorstep of Auckland. I have had urban planners say to me quietly, that they think that development would not get approval today. Um, you know, that it is yesterday's thinking and kind of insane from a climate perspective. But we are far too far along the, the path with that one now. Um, we've committed to it. So I think describing it as yesterday's thinking is, is you know, whilst uncharitable, probably not untrue. Um, it does have the saving grace. So this is... For those that don't know, this is a development on the Auckland motorway south of Auckland. So um, if you're heading from Auckland to Hamilton, you would see the diggers every time you go through, likely. Mm. Massive numbers of houses going in. Currently, it is a motorway-dependent suburb. So everyone who is commuting from there will be getting in their car and clogging up what's probably already the busiest stretch of motorway in the country. Uh, however, it is on the train line, so um, there is potential for that for that suburb to be made as good as it can be for the climate, and there are moves to do that now. So it's going to have one, if not two, I can't remember, train stations that should be walking distance for a lot of people or cycling distance. Um, there was talk of a park and ride. <laughs> 
people will be getting in their cars and dri driving to the train station and then commuting um, on the train to Auckland. But if that can be done so that it's quick, um, that will be a real benefit to the people who live there and to the climate. And the other big shift that the developers are talking about down there now is getting jobs down there. So mm. schools, jobs, cafes, all of the stuff that people want within, if you like, a 15-minute suburb uh, so that they can almost recreate that that idea in their own community. And I think that would have huge benefits um, for the people who are going to be living down there and for the emissions of you know everybody not having to, the whole of New Plymouth, if you like, not having to travel into central Auckland to do what they need to do. Um, they could probably just about drive to Hamilton, frankly. Um, that motorway is getting so quick now. So, um, there, you know, there are moves, I think, if you like to retrofit maybe what started as a pretty dubious idea from a climate perspective to make it better. And, I, you know, I've got to add for fairness that the housing crisis is probably what has pressured local and central government to promote, central in particular, to promote that development. I think the pressure to give people homes um, mm. impossible prices mm. that Aucklanders are now facing, you know, they've, they've done something probably knowing that it wasn't ideal from an emissions perspective, but there are other factors at play. As you say, one crisis meets another and uh, you get uh, complexity. Uh, what else is uh, happening on stuff at the moment and uh, what do we need to go and learn about? It's always things happening on stuff. <laughs> A couple of other features from the magazine that people might like are solar panels. Rob Stock from our business team has looked at why there isn't more rooftop solar in New Zealand. This was meant to be the hot new thing 10 years ago. Uh, hasn't really taken off, um, but he found that actually it has taken off more than you think. It's just that you can't see a lot of the, the panels from the road. Um, and also looked at you know the cost benefits, whether it adds value to your house when you're trying to sell. Um, what else have we got? We had a uh, interview by me um, with a free driver called William Trubridge who is lovely and who is in New Zealand to have his second baby. He's got some thoughts about climate change in the state of the oceans, which is a place he spends a lot of time. Uh, and on the housing theme, I did a story which wasn't in the magazine itself but ran in the Sunday Star Times that day about human optimism and why houses that are very clearly in the erosion zone at various coastal hotspots around the country are still selling for, in some cases, many millions of dollars. Um, we just appear incapable of believing that climate change is really going to affect uh, property prices. So either the housing market is so insanely bulletproof that nothing, no amount of scientific evidence can dent it, um, or there's something else going on. But that was a fascinating story to write. Um, and I finished it and promptly got on Trade Me to look at uh, batches by the beach that I might be able to afford one day. That's <laughs> <laughs> the problem in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, Louise, there, there is a full born every minute. I think that's the explanation for the phenomenon you've just described. It's always delightful talking to you. Please keep up the great work and uh, don't forget to visit Eloise at stuff.co.nz. Is there actually a, a distinct URL for the Forever Project? 
There is. Uh, so you can um, just Google Forever Project and you'll get to our landing page. Um, or you can go to the staff homepage, scroll down past business. But before you get to sport and you'll find our dedicated climate change section, if you click through into that, you'll see all of the stories that go on the Forever Project magazine, as well as the daily news that we're doing on climate change. Fantastic. Well, good luck with uh, your uh, family in lockdown still. And um, thanks for joining us on this climate business. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.